0: Hey, this is Dag, and you're listening to Beyond Trek Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Beyond Trek Podcast. This is Dag. I've got Renzo in the house. Today, we have a very special episode. We're going to be talking about medical ethics and practices in Star Trek and how those relate to the world at large. Um, Here with me today, I've got two... Uh, Very uh, appreciated guests, uh, Jeff and Mark. Uh, Jeff, tell us about yourself.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Jeff. Uh, I currently work in public transit, but previously worked for over six years for a private ambulance company based out of Long Beach, California. Uh, Worked as an EMT for several years and then moved into dispatch and as a transportation coordinator for a level two trauma center uh, in Los Angeles County my favorite series is uh go niners i'm a big ds9 fan been a star trek fan my entire life i remember watching early early episodes TOS with my dad and early tng uh favorite episode of all time for me is, is hard to pick uh ever evolving i grew up mainly on TNGs, so i'd probably say yesterday's enterprise or best of both worlds is uh, ones that, that definitely come to mind as a
0: favorite Right on. Thanks so much for being here. And Mark.
2: Uh, hey, Mark Edwards. Um, I'm a paramedic. Um, I've been a paramedic for seven years. All of that was a 911 dispatch, um, though I just recently switched to a hospital based. So I'm working out of an ER now. Uh, I have been, <clears throat> excuse me, I've been a uh, Star Trek fan my whole life as well. Um, I got started on the, uh, the next generation um and i'm also a a niner as well uh deep space nine is the best series and i will die on that hill (laughs) um and uh just for the sake of that we'll just go ahead and say uh in the pale moonlight is my favorite episode followed closely by the inner light
0: yeah all the light episodes yeah. Oh, you know, I uh, we did a riff track on the inner light. I called it the inner gaslight because there's so much in that episode. <laughs> I did it more as like because my mom really loves the inner light. And I'm like, man, wouldn't it be terrible if I did a show where I just trashed the inner light? Huh. Well. Um. Yeah. So I'm really glad to have you both here. Thank you so much for responding to the chat. Um, so yeah, let's just dig in. What are some cool or terrible examples of medical care treatment? The way healthcare is provided in Star Trek. Do you have any notable episodes of healthcare that's just like, wow, that was really cool, or oh my god, I can't believe they let that happen. OSHA would destroy them. Um,
1: Jeff- yeah, one good example. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so actually last night I watched this episode again just to kind of refresh my memory, but it was uh, Voyager Season 7 Critical Care where the EMH gets uh, kidnapped by a trader and sold to a medical ship on a planet, and they have these different levels of care, so Level Red was the people who had a low TC uh, what they called um, treatment coefficient, and Level Blue was all the important people of society, so that's a interesting way to look at healthcare, where people would get treated based on how important they are to societies instead of how sick they actually are
0: right and that was the episode where that entire society had basically overturned its decision making to an ai known as the allocator and everyone was just like yeah we just do what the allocator tells us to do because <laughs> i always wondered like no, what it really happened... wasn't
1: explained very well it was just that you never know where the history of that came from but yeah it was a, a. everyone just trusted the computer and the computer said that this person's important so they get the medicine and, and that would kind of be a scary uh, environment to live in
0: absolutely I always wondered what happened on that planet to make them make such a desperate decision and change
3: it could have been something like one of the old TOS episodes where the computer just ends up being what they rely on and in this society it just went
0: on for a couple extra centuries well, what was the name of that computer that controlled that one planet in TOS? Landru. Yes, this is Landru. Give me your healthcare. Oh, uh, Mark, what do you think about that episode?
2: Um. So, yeah, I think that that's uh, once you eliminate the the human question or the alien question, the uh, the sentient being question, from uh from the equation, and you just start divvying up healthcare by, um. You know effectively one's ability to produce uh within the society is really what that boils down to um that that's just an ethical black hole <laughs> um like you pretty much cross the event horizon into uh um we could draw any number of political parallels to that but it's they. Yeah, it's a fucking nightmare i'm sorry am i allowed to swear on we're you? totally Absolutely. Cool <laughs> with,
0: with swearing in here um I I definitely want to dig into that that's an interesting insight. If here's a hypothetical, if the allocator, the way that it was presented on Voyager had come to earth 10 15 years ago and we had just overturned that decision making to the allocator. What what do you think society would look like today in in terms of not just medical and healthcare and we definitely want to talk about like what that would look like? but also, you know, social stratification. How would that have changed?
3: I mean, capitalism and it would run into each other with loving embrace really quickly, right? This person has billions. They must produce more to society. You must save their life.
0: Yeah, and that's the the sort of arbitrary decision making because was it was it wholly based on your ability to produce? Cuz I'm like in my head, if that was the case, middle management would be just be executed. <laughs> all the people, all the essential workers would be like, yes, you are well, you are blue level, we the, need uh, you.
3: That depends on if the reader has a business degree, right? Business degrees yeah. love the idea of middle management because they get their underlings to produce more, so
2: you need the people who get others to produce as well. Well, middle management by its very existence props up the, the other social structures that are required for the capital production, so they're not necessary in the sense of actual production but they're necessary in the sense of capitalist production i would say the allocator is just neoliberalism the robot (laughs) yeah i'm with you there so i don't think much would have changed other than you know we would probably just forego uh the the minor Mm. uh vagaries of electoral politics instead of just letting the alligator do it but i don't know that there'd be much of a difference presently Mm. but i'm also the bit of a doomer pill on that.
1: (laughs) Jeff? I think a lot of people in our society that need health care the most are the ones that are obviously the sickest, but they are the homeless people. They are the drug addicts. They are people that have chronic conditions that don't allow them to be productive to society. Uh, So if we had a system where it was an allocator, they would judge those people as uh, not needing the medical care. Uh, and that, that would be the ethical black hole that you were talking about
2: yeah Absolutely. Um, let me let me ask you this when you're because uh, I've noticed this and uh, where I work and I assume this is a feature everywhere in the US but uh, you basically have because EMS is at this point just a, a band-aid over a black hole like a non-functional healthcare system but you have people who are using 911 to treat, Chronic health care conditions that should be treated by a primary condition care provider. But because our system is broken, they call 911 because they can't get a, a primary care provider, which I don't blame them for that. I would too in their situation. But basically, 911 is now effectively just an MTALA transport vehicle to get you to an ER where you can get stabilizing care. Is that does that map across the country?
1: Yeah, I mean. Los Angeles, obviously, a huge city in the U.S., mm-hmm. dozens of hospitals. Uh, we were a glorified taxi for, for many of the patients that we transported. Uh, and we did a lot of insurance transports. You know, someone calls the uh, calls 911. They go to the closest hospital, uh, especially in Los Angeles. If they're Kaiser, Kaiser will say, oh, no, we don't want you at this hospital. We want you at our hospital. So then we would go from one ER, pick up the patient, take them to another ER. Uh, We also did critical care sports. We had transports with nurses and doctors and and occasionally flight teams, uh, transporting patients that were in a a critical care ICU at one hospital that needed to go to a higher level of care. But uh, when you're in in downtown Los Angeles, uh, again, going back to like the homeless population, there's people that can't get a doctor, don't uh, get kicked out of one hospital, they're uh, drug seeking occasionally. So, we are doing a lot of transports that truly don't require an ambulance. I remember even in ENT school, they told us, you know, probably only about 3% of your actual calls you go on are going to be a true emergency. Um, I worked 911 coverage in one area of East LA. And out of all the calls I ran there, I would probably say maybe one or two was an actual true emergency that that person needed to get to the hospital, you know, yesterday to to treat their problem. most of these are, are injuries where they could have driven themselves if they had a car or they just don't know what else to do. Um, and then of course you run into the problems of an ambulance is not cheap. Yeah. At least back, back when I was doing it, it was I mean $600 just for the ambulance to show up and then just like everything else in healthcare, you know, it ended up being 1000 thousand, fifteen hundred $1,500 to drive a person a mile and a half to the hospital. Jeez.
2: So i guess it really comes down to in terms of the allocator it depends on what it would value as production because it could in theory just decide not to provide healthcare mm-hmm. to those people because they're non-productive they're like non not neoliberal subjects anymore um, or it could see the debt that they are incurring as a productive asset itself within our economy and it could Further destabilize our healthcare system in order Oof. to ramp up the production of debt. That's a black hole. I didn't even yeah. think about. Jeez. <laughs> kind of a scary
1: thought. Yeah. That that's yeah.
2: like Fourteenth Amendment
0: loophole right there. Yeah. Um. Another thing that I wanted to to touch. Oh, did you have more to add? Uh, not on this one. I'm just. Go ahead. Oh. Um, in that particular episode, it seemed that the allocator and its influence had been there long enough for the people to just accept, oh, my TC's too low. This is just this is just my 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 lot in life. Oh darn. Um I think that would be a really scary thing to walk around and just have, you know, people be like Oh, hi, this is 911 dispatch, but uh, it looks like your address comes from a TC that's too low. I'm really sorry. We can't send EMT out to your services. Have a nice day. Click. Just like, (laughs) jeez. And people just be on the phone like, oh yeah, that's right. My TC's too low. Guess I'll die.
1: (laughs) Well, and they they had one character who was sick, who wanted to be a doctor. And the EMH was encouraging to continue his medical training. And he basically said, oh, no, I won't be able to do it because, you know, that's not my class. That's not my position. So that is kind of like what you said, they just pretty much accepted what was going on in their world. And they probably didn't have a whole lot of outside influence, um, encouraging them to fight the power and try something different.
2: Yeah. I mean, like I run into, I don't know how many people who don't take their Prescribe medications because they can't afford them and i i don't see much of a, a whole lot of daylight between those two situations of just well i, I can't afford my health care so i guess i just die like that's basically the position people who take insulin and don't make and don't have like affordable health care and so maybe the yeah. allocator is just maybe it's here man (laughs) (laughs) i mean is china's
3: social credit score really all that different in that sense right like we expect that they're going to be using it for access to government services very soon if not already so it's not that far from but there was actually a a tv show on sci-fi channel not too long ago that hit on the same subject called incorporated where society was divided into levels. People who worked for the megacores got access to hospitals and doctors. If you didn't work for them, you worked for some of their subsidiaries, you got access to these clinics. If you didn't work for a big company at all, nothing, you just didn't have access to it. Jeez. So yeah, it's not all that far from you know not having insurance in America, but yeah, it's pretty bad.
0: Let's flip the script for a bit. At the end of that episode, the EMH does some pretty creative uh, treatment to get uh the allocator and and the administrator of said allocator played by larry drake uh to make some changes and then of course the voyage voyager leaves and we don't actually know if the, the, the administrator cares about that um but uh he he basically infects the administrator with the same thing his compatriot had before that person had died um to get the allocator to be like oh well, you don't, you have the same TC as this person over here. You should just die. Um, what do you think about the EMH's medical decision? Regardless of all the other ethical situations of the patients and the administrator involved, uh, was the EMH more or less ethical as a doctor,
2: Mark? To specifically infect that person uh, in such a way that they would receive lower care.
0: And then, as sort of like a lesson to the whole tiered system of the alligator
2: yeah i uh i don't know that that is uh so i have sympathy for the desire to do that i don't know (laughs) that that is the role of a healthcare provider right um like it is i I don't know that it's his position to meter out something that could cause medical harm to someone else in order to teach them a lesson about how unstable and uh causal of harm their system is like that's something I might personally do just as like a guy, but like if I were a physician and I were doing it for the sake of like broader, I, yeah, I, that's very, very murky at best.
1: Right on. Jeff. Yeah, I think you said it well, that's a that, uh, decision that nowadays would get you arrested for uh, you know, causing harm to an individual under your care. Uh, Obviously, he did it for the greater good, thinking that it would solve the planet's problems, but he only saw a fraction of what was going on on the planet and had no idea what else that was involved. Obviously, he you know, was in that hospital ship and nowhere else doesn't understand the society, so he doesn't really know what type of uh, effects that decision would have if the allocator went away. Would know, that cause the collapse of society because everyone was so used to it? That's a bigger problem that he probably didn't think about.
0: Yeah. And of course, we know that that episode was more of a vehicle to show how the EMH had expanded beyond its base programming. Um, and I'm sure that we all empathized with the EMH's choice there, because in that episode, the administrator was definitely evil. Um, uh, and then that was how you know the audience goes along with that.
3: If I may, so let's try flipping the script here, right? That's a great example of a situation where a Starfleet imposes some of their views on uh, a newly encountered race right let's flip it and go to the opposite one the tng episode ethics where uh Worf gets his spine snapped and wants to commit suicide right That's, that is the only noble thing that you can do if you're a crippled warrior and uh here starfleet has to try and respect the medical wishes uh but they fight with themselves about doing so because killing their friend Worf isn't exactly a pleasant idea either How do you guys approach a situation where a patient or a a person that you're carrying to the hospital or whatever is refusing treatment for religious reasons or ethical reasons or something like that
2: Uh, mark um so i i take the uh the standpoint that uh i have to respect your views and your wishes right i can't and that's the law actually Mm -hmm. um but just at a personal level even if it weren't the law um I'm going to respect your decision ultimately right you have absolute autonomy and the absolute right to make any decision about your health care that you deem necessary or want and I can't override that under any circumstances Uh, as long as you're conscious and can you know as long as you have the ability to provide and withdraw consent I cannot override your autonomy or decision making that said I certainly can argue with you about how smart your decision is. <laughs> um, and depending on the circumstances, I'm perfectly open and willing to doing that. Um, it varies, obviously, uh, from situation to situation, but um, I think I think the floor is open in those situations for conversation. It is not open to imposition of one's will on the other person. Well said. My... Jeff? Yeah, same question.
1: Yeah, as long as a person is alert and oriented and able to make their own decisions, and they have the right and ability to make their own decisions. Um, Kind of going back to my EMT school training, I remember they taught us if you were with a patient who you thought was unstable or on the verge of passing out and they were refusing care, all you'd have to do is stay with that patient until they passed out. And then once they have now passed out, now you can provide care to them. So you kind of have to learn to play the system a little bit similar to the way the, the doctor did. But um, the thing about Worf in ethics is that he, he wanted Riker to perform the act for him, right? So it wasn't mm-hmm. truly him committing suicide. It was assisted suicide in, in a way. Um, but I, I've dealt with many patients who were on the verge of, of death uh, due to cancer or something that I you know an EMT or paramedic could do nothing about. And... You feel bad for them. Obviously, you don't want to see them in pain and suffering and um, did a lot of transfers to skilled nursing facilities, people who've been there for years trying to recover from various injuries or sicknesses. And it's not a good way to live. It's not a way that I would want to live. And I think if, if I had a, a true terminal illness like that, not saying that I'd kill myself, but I, I can definitely understand how people would be in that situation. And I would I would want someone to respect my decision if I was ready to do that also.
0: You know, there's a number of times where they disregard, uh, you know, multicultural medical ethics and be like, "No, we have to save lives." They you know, like Riker's like, "This is disgusting. I'm not gonna do this." And it was just really a lot of attitude towards that. And then, of course, the DS episode, DS Nine episode, Sons of Moke, where Kern shows up and wants Worf to do the same thing, and Worf does it because Worf understands the value and the cultural meaning of it. You know, you are fighting for your life, and the, the, the glory is dying in battle, so if you're fighting for your life and someone kills you, that's a ticket to Stovo Corps. Um But, you know, right then and there, Dax, Bashir, Cisco, they get involved, they resurrect Kern, um, and then, of course, at the end of that episode, crazy ethical conundrum of just forcibly wiping Kern's memory without his consent um and sending him off to live on a farm <laughs> um talk about wowzers! um thoughts on that episode anyone anytime
1: i think ds9 in general had some of the craziest medical because they were out out in the boonies and and bashir was kind of the new doctor the gung-ho attitude um i think back to like Vedic Burial, you take out half his brain he'll still be the same person type of thinking which is uh a little hard to believe yeah but, um uh i think bashir had obviously the least amount of medical training out of, of everyone in star trek and uh probably the most uh excitement for his job I think very excited to be a doctor in the, in uh, ds9 and kind of sought out that type of position where he would really get to make a difference like uh a new paramedic in the field they used to call him a paragon because they always think that they're as powerful as god they can now save a life uh bashir definitely had that, that type of attitude
3: yeah he definitely had some of the best uh bedside manner out of all the doctors in trek 2 maybe him and crusher but all the rest had a uh, iffy moments where they might chew out their patient rather snappily yeah
2: i would actually argue bashir had probably some of the most questionable bedside manner in terms of uh trying to Bone his patients, also true, <laughs> also true. Like, uh, and making deeply questionable ethical decisions. And that, like the, I can't remember the name of the episode, but there was one alien who was like something about gravity. She was in a wheelchair. Molora,
1: no. he basically Passelar. like
2: yeah. yeah. Like browbeat her for the entire episode to take this life-changing surgery that would prevent her from ever returning home just so she could walk and station gravity and be his BFF girlfriend forever. Uh, that, that seems like something that should have gotten run up the chain to Starfleet Medical's ethical board. <laughs> like,
0: yeah. And that, that brings up, you know, conversations of, of ableism in yeah. that environment and it, it just sort of reinforces this underlying, uh, what's the word John Billings? He likes to say pernicious uh this pernicious phantom of colonialism on on the part of the federation starfleet that we'll talk about that in another episode of course
2: (laughs) i was gonna say my my super deep cut on star trek is that uh it's basically what happens if you take liberalism and give it post scarcity without ever having to go through an actual leftist transformation of uh public consciousness so but that's a Don't worry. Episode. We'll have the luxury
3: gay space <laughs> communism conversation some other time. Later. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: Well, and I mean, Bashir Bashir oversees some of the most um, controversial, I would say, some of the most controversial medical moments in Star Trek. Um, as you say, he's always trying to bone his patients. You got Melora, you got uh, Serena, um, one of those uh, augments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, they're. Man, it was so clear to me, like, five But seconds at
3: least ago he didn't reanimate Mengele just to ask him some medical questions in the Delta Quadrant, right? Like, <laughs> the reanimation of Krelmoset's, like, hologram, <clears throat> that's
2: that's really problematic if you think about it. That was that was actually my episode of choice for, like, the worst medical episode in Star Trek was not that in particular, but also Janeway ordering the procedure being done against Bolana's wishes Oof. is probably, like, the biggest ethical medically ethical like just monstrous decision and not the forcing show. the splitting of tuvix
1: i was gonna say dare we get into that yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: my uh, my
3: dog who's passed out over here on the couch is literally named tuvix yeah. so i totally am <laughs> a comfortable Ooh. with that combo yeah.
2: um, just in terms of um, medical ethics not necessarily ethics at large fair enough um, right yeah absolutely yeah, tuvix definitely is its own like PhD dissertation on fake fantasy ethics that like we would have to that's just a deep deep. People are still going back and forth on Tuvix and it's
0: been 20 something years. Um I I think if I were to try and summarize that, I think everybody recognizes that um Tuvix was in a shit position and the ship needed tuvok and i think if tuvok himself had been there he of course would have defaulted to the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one uh but that doesn't make it right that doesn't make it ethical um would, go ahead
2: would, would tuvok have assented to killing neelix to make that happen too because i think tuvok would have given up his own life but would he have also given up the life of another person who didn't want to die
3: oh that's what he's saying he's saying that tuvok would have argued that you should split tu- uh, tuvix
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Well, so... hmm. Okay. It's possible.
3: And I I agree with him on that one. I think that that is a pretty Vulcan approach to it, too. Because we're not... Two instead of one needs of many.
0: Right. And we're still pre Navarre, where they understand that uh, those aphorisms aren't always the the end of logic. So... But uh, back to Krell-Mazette. Jeff any thoughts on on reanimating a
1: uh, <laughs>
0: horrible person uh just to take a little bit of advantage of their uh medical expertise uh
1: i think it's it's a situation janeway was in was probably the best thing to do for the patient but probably not the best decision to make overall um i'd have to go back and watch that episode that's been a, a while since i've seen that one but uh I think she would do anything to save her crew, so that's pretty much the attitude that she took, and I think that kind of applies to Tuvix as well. It was a, a Kobayashi Maru scenario. No matter what she did, someone would say it was the wrong decision. Um, I, I'd and, like... Oh, go ahead. No, that, that was it. Just Yeah, it, it's a situation where you, you, no matter what you choose, someone's gonna like it, someone's not gonna like it, and it, you could argue either side.
0: Yeah, I'd like to think that Janeway existed in a closed environment. If she had been, within the federation and these kind of situations have happened um it's scary to think that she might have been a more a little bit more elastic on letting certain individuals on her ship die because uh when you're within the federation you can just get a new chief engineer assigned to your ship you can get a new doctor assigned to your ship but out there in the middle of nowhere when you need Tuvok's tactical experience at station, you need Bellana's engineering expertise at station. Um, she doesn't have the luxury of just being like, yes, I'm not going to reanimate space Hitler to heal my engineer uh, because uh, I, I freaking need my my chief engineer. I, I don't have a replacement handy. Uh, I'm not going to let Torek anywhere near my my crystals
3: <laughs> i mean aren't all choices like that a product of your environment right like if you have choices like there are 11 hospitals we can send this person to all of them have good trauma wards it, whichever one is closest is the best choice whereas if you only have one they're only going to the one no matter how far away it is so
0: or you're in the middle of nowhere and all you have is a field hospital and a whole bunch of adrenaline yeah yeah
3: that's yeah, right i
2: think uh um... I mean, Krell Masset is, uh, is um, I think, just a narrative device probably for the actual ethical dilemma, which is should you consult research that was obtained unethically? Uh, like, that's the real question there. And I don't quite know where I fall um, on it. I think if, you know, there's the, the argument it was obtained unethically and therefore we should not use it. And then there's the other argument, which is, well, irregardless of its source, it can now be used to help people, including people that were previously victimized by its acquisition, is it it not even more unethical to withhold that care um, now that we have the knowledge? And that is a very interesting ethical choice. Um, And I think, ultimately, it probably should fall to the individual patient to make the determination about whether or not they accept that care or acquiesce to it uh, once they've been fully informed and that is the dilemma that that episode presents at the end and the real ethical fuck you is when Janeway says I don't care what of thinks I need my chief engineer do it anyway um, and that is where I think like that's like a court martial offense in my opinion for Janeway like w- w- one of many but uh, <laughs> but that's that's going to come up when she gets home if she logged that. Because if I were Balana, I would probably refuse to continue my duties after that. I would just stay in my quarters. I would not participate.
3: Well, to that point, right, a lot of the research that was done by these monsters like Mengola or the Japanese Unit 731, right, the research that they did has been found to be bunk, right? Like there are mm-hmm. some things, small things in it that are still used because of value, like hypothermia thresholds for people, that might have some relevance still, but almost all of it was found to be of no medical value at all Mm -hmm.
2: which is you know for the best probably right yeah but like for the sake of argument let's just say that. sure no i get your point yeah say mengala discovered somehow in his monstrous shop of horrors discovered a cure for paralysis right like what would we do now that we're not in that situation so we have to answer it but the realm of speculative fiction put us in that situation and i it's real it's real murky and i think fundamentally like at bottom at the end of that discussion there is no it's right or wrong for everybody i think it's going to come down to the patient and what they want is where i am
3: i mean running with that a little further right imagine if he had discovered some cure to paralysis right at what point does the greater good, the good of the many, outweigh to the good of the few, start justifying people like that? That's the real danger for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if he had cured cancer with what he'd researched and done by terrorizing and harming thousands of people, right? Like, how many millions does he have to save before his credibility, instead of being that of a monster, is now one, oh, the guy who cured cancer? Yeah, it's... These medical questions super don't have answers, and that's probably for the best. But, yeah, it gets very...
0: I, Harry. I think the founders don't give a damn that bashir confined a man against his will jumped into his brains physically extricated uh the protein sequences to, needed to cure them because the person that he was tying down was also responsible for said disease in the first place um speaking but, of saving mengala yeah okay. the founders
3: totally deserve like all of the medical niceties don't they I mean, actually,
2: <laughs> for like a, a real-world example of that, though, is uh, gynecology. Um, the field of gynecology was pioneered by a doctor who experimented on slaves without anesthesia.
3: Tell me more about that. I didn't know about.
1: That.
0: Okay, hold <laughs> yeah, up, no. hold up. I just, I just want to tell the audience real quick. I don't know if there will be any trigger warnings here, but yeah. let's let's just uh, yeah, yeah, yeah pivot on that.
2: Yeah, that's um, I mean, it, it gets very dark and it it's trigger warnings all day, every day with this. But uh, yeah, the field of gynecology was pioneered largely by I can't remember the doctor's name, but uh, uh, he basically just experimented um, on a population of slaves in the antebellum south and did so in many cases without anesthesia. Um, so, yeah, the, now how much of that research is presently currently used? I don't know. Um, but that was the genesis of that field of medicine, and that's very, very dark. So that that is probably the most. I mean, there's probably other examples of it, but that's the one that comes to my mind because I was, I just was recently reading an article about discrimination in medicine, and wow. it was in, they referenced that.
0: That's incredible. I uh, I wish that we had had one or two of our other invitees in this because we would be able to get. Um, the woman's perspective on that. I'm sure it's, it's quite learned.
2: Yeah. Here uh, I...
1: And when you talk about discrimination in medicine too, that, that brings up a whole nother topic. Cause you, you do see that obviously. And, and you hear a lot of stories and read reports of um, African-Americans going to the hospitals and not being given the same amount of pain medication versus a white person who was complaining of the exact same signs and symptoms or had the same type of accident. Uh, um, you know, so that's something that you would hope that would be gone in the future, Star Trek being the utopia that we all hope it would be in 400 years, but uh, there's definitely episodes that, that show that it's, it's not that way, especially on alien worlds. I think there's a lot of Earth medicine that we don't really see in Star Trek, actually. you see the sick bay on the ship, but you don't really know what a hospital is like in uh, 24th century Earth.
0: That's really true. Well, yeah. Sick Bay on a ship is really more like a field hospital that's just super high tech. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't get those 40 floors of inpatient procedures and, and those kinds of things. Um, they do love to tell us though that on earth they, they ended disease, they ended famine, they
3: ended war, they ended crime, et cetera. Poverty, so that, all you, that. yeah, you've got to, you can make a pretty safe assumption though that medical access at least on core federation worlds is pretty stellar. But who knows about, like, more on the
0: fringes, so.
3: Right.
0: That, uh, for some reason, that discrimination subject reminded me of the episode Dear Doctor and Enterprise, where mm-hmm. uh, they encounter uh, that world where there are two sentient species, um, the Valachians uh, the and the Menk, and the Valachians have been in, uh, affected by some kind of uh, genetic disease, Uh, which is killing the Valachians, but the Mank are totally cool with it. And, excuse me, Um, you know, I think this is the first episode where where canonically Archer mentions, you know, we should have a prime directive at some point in the future that prevents us from having to make these decisions on the fly. Um, But, you know, Phlox discovers the cure for this Valachian disease that would allow the Valachians to... Continue to propagate um, and continue to sort of subjugate the Mank, but the natural order of things seems to be pointing to the Mank becoming, you know, the the dominant intelligent life on the planet. For the sake of description, um, ultimately, Flocks withholds the cure, and the Velakians are. And a side note that'd be really interesting to see in the 32nd century just a bunch of mank people with warp drive because the wallachians are dead a thousand years later but um you know is is that another situation of like the the mountainous <clears throat> greater good of, of natural development of a society versus the the ethical decisions of flocks that in withholding
1: that medicine jeff That's a hard one. I think as, as a person, I would always want to make the decision to help people. Or you're working in healthcare. care, the... yeah, that's why typically people go into healthcare uh, Definitely not for the money, especially as an EMT. I got paid absolutely, but uh, I enjoyed my job immensely. Um, so you think if you were in a situation like that, you want to provide a cure for them. Um, and that reminds me also of this uh, TNG episode, Symbiosis. We have the, the two planets one is addicted to drugs one is not and they're using that drug addiction to uh to get what they want on the planet that is, is healthy uh so it, it's medicine can be used as a, a way to control a society and keep people down so uh there's a lot of um problems also in the enterprise era with uh they were brand new into space and still trying to feel their way and learn learn the universe and make the right decisions and i think that played into it as well
3: yeah the space cowboy era as we refer to it on the show quite a bit
2: yeah Um, Uh, i haven't seen that episode are both species like sapient like fully self-aware um Mm -hmm.
0: sapient but the Mank are demonstratively uh lesser evolved according Mm -hmm. to the, the description of the episode it's it's an episode that i haven't seen for a couple of years um but yeah basically enterprise arrives at this homeworld where they're met by a valakian doctor and a mank orderly um Sado discovers that the mank are are a second lesser evolved yet unaffected race and by unaffected they're talking about the disease that's raging the valakians um, the mank live alongside the valakians and they're sort of like second class citizens on the world they're they're both you know pretty the valakians are clearly like federation level at this time, or, or at least United Earth level. Um, the Mank are a little bit behind, but the Wallachians are dying out from a uh, genetic disease, uh, which is experiencing an accelerated rate of mutation, um, and the Wallachian doctor thinks the answer to a cure may lie in the Mank genome. Um, this It's to note that the Wallachians are not a warp drive culture, um, and Phlox learns that the Valachians suffer from the illness because their gene pool has reached a dead end and the Mank are undergoing an awakening process. Uh, Phlox also finds that the Valachians have been stifling and underestimating the Mank. Even though he's found a cure, he does not believe it would be ethical to administer. Archer considers how a prime directive would be helpful and provides the Valachians uh, with medicine that will diminish the symptoms for a decade anticipating the mank natural evolution and new levels of understanding between them
2: hmm. yeah so. that's that is a tough one um uh yeah i don't uh i i think that that is a difficult uh decision to make um i that actually like kind of highlights just i have problems with the prime directive just as a thing um because i Who doesn't definitely (laughs) um i feel like the prime directive uh there's really actually like two versions of it there's like the strong version which is you can never interfere under any circumstances and then there's the weak version which is we should try our best not to affect the development of intelligent species against their will um Mm -hmm but err on the side of the preservation of life and which of those gets implemented depends on the writer and the moral lesson <laughs> that, that episode is trying to teach Absolutely. so there's a, there's a lack of consistency um, and I prefer the second version um, but uh, I feel like that episode is trying to post hoc justify the first version and I'm not entirely comfortable with that but as far as the dilemma itself goes I don't know which I don't know what I would do in that situation um, I, like, think I just the way don't that, know I think the way that we should think of it is the
3: letter of the law is probably the first of those two but the spirit mm-hmm. of the law is most certainly the second right and depending on the captain's <clears throat> tolerance for bending those letters right you'll see either one or the other like in, in a given episode yeah. but the, when they, when they say, say like general order zero and they read it out it's real strict right it's definitely the first of those two interpretations so uh, but yeah, yeah.
2: I think like the most cynical interpretation of it is that it's an excuse not to have the federation deal with the realpolitik of their decisions in the galaxy like if they actually followed through on their own internal ethics in their dealings with outside races then they would have a lot of problems on their hands in terms of their neighbors and allies oh for sure
3: if you want to look at cynically right like imagine a race that advances over the course of 200 years right you had the option to save them from some near catastrophe and you just let it hit you let the rock hit them in the face, right 200 years later, they have advanced, they survived they are now spacefaring too and they look at you and go, but you didn't save us and you could have. Think of the billions you could have saved and you didn't. We can never be friends, right Like that's something that that should be looked at a bit more closely. I don't think we've had that episode in Trek um, but it's something that I think we definitely should talk about. Uh, But, yeah, that's kind of straying well outside of the medical and healthcare aspect of this.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know what I would do in that particular episode if I... Because at that point, it really is just the decision of that crew. They don't have a guiding directive, and the question is whether or not you interfere in the social structure of another civilization by curing something which causes suffering on a part of one half of that civilization. And like personally, I would probably, uh, I would probably offer the curative and let that take its course. Um, I, I don't think that I'm obligated to, I don't feel personally obligated to non interference if it is. Truly beneficent interference that does not, yeah. I mean, and I, I understand the counter arguments either, but just like if, like, in terms of like now I'm affecting negatively the other species, um, but that's yeah, just well,
3: sort of my f- Jeff mentions the right episode to counter that, right? Symbiosis, the TNG episode, is literally only through inaction, only through letting people suffer, do you break the cycle of addiction, right? Yeah. So that's something that real-world medical providers have to do with all the time, right? Like, do you give them some sort of opiate? No. You're not going to encourage their drug habit, for the most part. So yeah, it's it's definitely realistic to, to discuss these.
1: Well, and going back to Phlox, if you were truly looking at just from the medical perspective, not from the social or political, if they're sick and they're asking for help, he should help. The doctor should help. Uh, want to do what you can, especially if you have the ability and the technology to do so. But at the same time, you can't necessarily be a federation of of ships that go around just solving diseases on every single planet. They they do have other things to to do and worry about in the galaxy. Uh, But if they come across a planet or a people that do need their help, then you think that would be the right thing to do, to help that person, help that organization, that planet, whatever it may be.
0: Well, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the influence underpinning our decision making here is that uh, everybody here has demonstrated the scale of this, this decision. It's, this isn't just, you know, a remote colony on an island somewhere or even a nation state. This is a whole planet, a whole world. The entire future of this world is now in the hands of Dr. Phlox with his vial of whatever is going to do to cure these people of their genetic issue. Um, and, and that is, uh, that's a decision that no single doctor should ever be in the position to make by themselves. Like if this was on earth, this would have gone to a board of, of medical professionals, uh, to determine what the, the efficacy, at least I'd hope so. Um, I am not in the medical profession. So maybe you guys, you know, out in the field have a bit more insight into whether or not, um, Flox was even like, Flox should have just stepped back and been like, uh, "No, I'm I'm not even going to look into this. This is way above my pay grade."
2: I guess it would. Uh, in the episode, did the uh, did the aliens ever become aware that a cure existed?
3: At the end, yes, and they they made the moral argument: "You're letting us die here," kind of thing. Yeah. So um,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like at that point you're so you're you're essentially prioritizing complete non-interference over a group of millions of people who are begging you not to die and that that is like my my cynical take on the prime directive where the uh, the intro to the show should be seek out new life and new civilizations and watch them fucking die Um, (laughs) is what that often turns into uh so i would i would err on the side of helping people who are begging you to help them if all you have to do is hand them a thing. Uh, what What you just said there,
0: that totally makes sense, why DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise just don't have that intro anymore, because we're just gonna watch them <laughs> fucking <you> die. <laughs> uh, um, I'm trying to think of other clearly um, obvious medical issues. Are there any episodes? Uh, I've got one if you want one. Hit me,
3: hit it so in the most recent bit of star trek we're seeing a big focus on like psychological care as well people's mental well-being and we're seeing whole counseling sessions about like getting over past trauma i think we can all agree that like psychological care is medical care is health care right are there any times that you've seen episodes where you're just like troy what are you doing don't that's not the way to approach that kind of trauma or times where it's the opposite and you think that she needs to plow deeper into something to help out one of her patients
2: too I would say that Um, i actually really liked um to the extent that they were able to and had the language in the 80s and 90s to address it i liked the way on balance i'll say on balance not in specifics because i'm sure there's a lot of glaringly bad things in the individual episodes but the way that the next generation in particular treated like say lieutenant barkley or when mm. Jordy got sucked into like a fantasy like trying to you know hook up with the designer of the enterprise uh v tuber um but uh (laughs) i think on balance they approach even in the early days they approach uh you have crew members high ranking crew members in positions of authority who have serious mental like illnesses or trauma Um, picard with uh the inner light and his long-term stress dealing with that that comes up a couple of times in his history with the Borg and people who have trauma and who have ongoing serious psychological uh, illnesses like lieutenant barkley they're not quite treated with the level of like uh respect that i would like to see in a show made today but for the 90s and just having them on like the flagship in a position of authority and being treated with respect like human beings that's huge, like, for the 90s. Like, I think they did actually a fairly good job on balance with that subject, even in the early days of the show.
1: Yeah,
0: I remember and, uh, watching the show in its first run-through and being being that kid who was moved around a bit and going to school and having to just talk to people like, oh, yeah, and they're... And I, kind of, I kind of felt like Barkley kind of represented me a little bit because I was always that nervous kid trying to make friends but then we'd move and I'd need to be that nervous kid trying to make friends again and um, yeah the way that you see that just kind of reframes um, a little bit of Barkley sort of beginning that normalization of you know, it's okay to have these things, you can still be a super awesome you know, person and then he was, you know he was a genius in that one episode
3: yeah what was your take on this jeff you you started there but i didn't quite get to hear you
1: yeah yeah the one of the things about troy is i think a lot of episodes they kind of used her as a lie detector more than an actual therapist um which is why i do like what they're doing in discovery i like the the culbert kind of switching to the therapist counselor type role um i liked his character from the beginning but never really liked what they did with him in the first couple seasons of discovery i didn't really feel like he got a lot of real doctoring in and and things like that um so i think he's he's taking on kind of a new and different role that i like and i the the way the discovery is handling trauma is much better than the 90s i think mark is right that for that time it, it was good for that time but there was you know every episode with the the villain of the week the space villain of the week the ship getting blown up crew members dying and then coming back you know that that Would cause a lot of trauma people would need to deal with that and when you're in kind of a very episodic television you don't get that because you get 42 minutes to tell a story and the next week it's a new story Uh, so when you get more to shows like ds9 and discovery where it's truly these long story arcs then you can actually deal with those things a little bit more um i'm I'm kind of excited to see what what they do with culver and how the the changes with adira and whatever is happening with tilly like there's a lot of trauma going on in discovery that's that's gonna have uh, people needing someone to talk to
2: i think yeah, it's very think, oh go ahead i was gonna say i think you uh yeah, yeah that's a very good point that the episodic nature of the early shows made it very difficult to deal with like the aggregate trauma of um like Miles. miles o'brien is a good example of uh, even in an arc series like that man should have He's either a testament to the off-screen healthcare apparatus or mental healthcare apparatus of Stark fleet, or uh, they did him kind of dirty. But uh, I I do think that with in the arc-based series, like with DS9 and later, you start to see them pay more attention to that. So, like with Garrick and Ezri's relationship, as the last season of that show, they start actually like digging into. The long-term psychological effects of being in a war and seeing, you know, a wall of names of all the people you went to school with are now dead. Right. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I, I, hope they start doing better, uh, as well. Yeah.
0: Well, that culminates in. You know, it's only a paper moon where Nog comes back from uh, losing his leg, and he is very much, he's, he's tired all the time, his leg itches, it hurts. Um, when he's not in the the coping strategy of the film, the the fantasy on the holodeck, he, he has to use the cane, and he's not doing so great, but when he's in his his safe, what he admits later in the episode, his safe place, he's totally fine. Because he doesn't thinking about it. He's not surrounded by uh, Tuvix. Vicks. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the dog. Um, but yeah, he's not surrounded by the elements that continually reinforce um, the source of his trauma. Um, and I think Aaron Eisenberg just was mastered that breakdown in the holodeck at the end, where he's talking to
2: um, Vic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was a very, very good scene. Um, also they they tried to do that too um the the episodic nature didn't admit of it um but they tried to do stuff like that in the next generation where um like when uh picard goes back to his family's uh family and they have a whole episode where it's basically just him dealing with having been uh borgified yeah been you know been made a borg and then murdering a bunch of Starfleet personnel uh, at their behest. Right. Um, which, you know, was only a single episode. But it, callbacks even that much were, were not too frequent in I was, that series.
0: Somebody said something earlier that made me think about the way Picard's recovery from the Borg in the 80s and 90s and then his admission in, I don't know if everybody here has seen Picard, um, but, you know, Seven asks him, Did it, does it ever really go away? Does it ever get easier? And and Picard says no, you know, about his assimilation. And I think that might just be a really tiny nod to the way mental health was considered 30 years ago. Hey, just man up, you know, get over it, you'll be Mm -hmm. fine. And today where it's like, no, this shit lingers. And if we had addressed it like this 30 years ago, maybe we'd be in a better position with mental health care today just a tiny little knot in that episode that came out last year. Yeah.
3: yeah, we do see a little bit of that in Voyager as well, right? The episode where Neelix loses one of his lungs to the Vedians, right? And he has to get the holographic lungs for a bit. Like there's that psychological panic attack that he goes through just of like, I can never leave this room, he thinks, right? So we definitely do see some of that, even in the more episodic shows, and I believe that reference comes back a couple times when he mentions the fact that he's got one of Kes's lungs inside of him too, which is also pretty traumatic. One of your best friends and at the time I think even romantic love interest gave like a piece of
2: them into you. So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Voyager actually um, it, I think it could have been done better, but uh, Seven's arc of going from drone to individual was uh, um, I think pretty, pretty, it, at least it was interesting. I don't know if it was well done or not, um, but just the amount of trauma that this person would have had to have experienced in that transition because they've been, you know, they were seven years old and then they were a part of a collective for 20, 30 years and then ripped from that. Yeah. And I think they could have played it up as the trauma was her having been a Borg, and I think they did a really good job of showing no, actually, the trauma is I'm not a Borg anymore. You took me away from the only thing I've ever known, and you're trying to make me ultimately something I'm not, but I don't have a choice, Uh, so I'm going to do my best to live this way now, but I still have a lot of trauma from having essentially been ripped from my prior state of baseline existence. You know, that entire crew is really lucky that as soon
0: as they deborgified her, she just didn't go around tubulating everybody. Yeah. (laughs) Zzz All right. Voyagers (laughs) assimilated. We're good.
3: (laughs) They did have that fantastic episode where they found oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but they found a whole bunch of Borg survivors on a planet Mm -hmm. that wanted to be reconnected Mm -hmm. to a cooperative, not to necessarily the collective, but they wanted to be relinked to end their own like internal strife and such, right? So we definitely have seen some different aspects of uh, a different approach to surviving the Collective, so, yeah. And they addressed that again
0: in that episode where her three former, you know, Unimatrix friends show up and they're looking for her to undo what they did so that they can die peacefully or something like that. It's just, yeah, Borg medical ethics, they don't exist. (laughs) Um... Yeah. So, were there any other episodes that you uh, you had on your head when we were talking about doing this spot? I think we had.
3: I obviously long. thought
1: of Picard and his artificial heart. Uh, sure. Getting the the key episode where he has to see what his life would have been like if he didn't go through that uh, situation. I forget what that episode is called, but um, tapestry. Tapestry. Thank you. Um, that kind of th- makes me think about just the the amazement of, of medical technology that they did have in the time where they can simply do a set of holographic lungs, have an artificial heart. Those are all things that would be amazing to have this time of year, this time of uh, the, the century that we live in. Um, one of the biggest things that I think would be useful is the transporter. That's the other thing that I was thinking to talk about is that when, you, when you, I'm coming from the EMT perspective and. Our biggest job as an EMT is to get the person to the hospital, get them to a higher level of care. And essentially, if you had a transporter system on Earth, you wouldn't need an ambulance, because everyone could be at the hospitals within two seconds if they had the ability to transport. Um, I'm actually kind of curious what you guys think of of the technology. If if there's one piece of future medical technology that you would like to see today, what would that be for you?
2: Personally, uh, I would like to see uh, sedatives that work as quickly as those hypo sprays. Uh, that, there you go. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if anybody's ever had somebody trying to eat their face and you're waiting on uh, Dr. Versed to make that person sleepy, um, but it doesn't happen as fast as it does on TV. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah so, there's got to be some kind of amazing
0: catalyst in those things that's just like <laughs> down. Um, yeah. I was thinking about the transporter, and we've seen the transporter have some very interesting uses, particularly in Unnatural Selection, where Dr. Pulaski's hair is used to rejuvenate her to a younger state, and in Rascals, where uh, you know, the, the elder patterns of the, those four crew are used to restore them to an adult state. And it makes me wonder, you know, sure, the transporter would be a great way to get somebody from a place to a hospital, but what if you already had their pattern on hand of their uninjured state? Could you just put them in the transporter buffer and then, you know, recycle them to a healed state, but also maintain their memories of that? Just be like, oh yeah, we have this one where you worked shot 31 times, so we're just going to beam that pattern to you, and then... What does that say about the ethics of body and how does that change concepts of injury and murder if you can just heal anybody in a flash
3: yeah there's a body horror aspect of that too right like they beam you out and you're missing an arm and then you appear and suddenly you've got your arm back there's there's some <laughs> freak out there
0: that, that's no gonna, from i was just gonna that's gonna be really really weird phantom limb syndrome if you like you don't have it then you do and whew.
3: Yeah, for me, it's definitely the replicator. The, the idea that hospitals had shortages of goods during the last like two years of COVID or medicine specifically, and then, you know, we could just fix it. We'll just make 800 more vials, tap, tap, tap. And now we've got the supplies that we needed or whatever it may be. That's the bit of technology that I always find most basically magical in Trek. And it has applications to basically every facet of everything.
0: Let's not talk about how handy one of these little trinkets would be, right?
3: Sure. The ability to just instantly,
0: instantly and accurately diagnose all the conditions right away, and then just you know program a vial in the hypo spray. All right, you're good. Next.
3: Yeah, Uh,
2: a portable MRI that just tells you exactly what's wrong, anyways. Right. Yeah, I mean, just being able to get somebody's vital signs without having to hook them up to like thirty feet of wires that are gonna you know, you're gonna have to like pray over to make sure that they're all working correctly because the person's got a intention trimmer. Um Yeah, that's, I, I think probably the medical tricorder would be, uh, would be my personal uh, big get, um, but that could just be me speaking from not wanting to be annoyed by having to acquire all that information <laughs> manually. Right, right, the analog component to the, yeah. the tricorder. We've talked a
0: lot about Bashir, blocks the EMH, uh, we've touched on Colber. Um, we, 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 we touched a little bit about Beverly, uh, we haven't said anything about McCoy, and I, I want to wonder, is that just because our generation gap with TOS, um, are we just not as learned about TOS, or are there situations in TOS where McCoy actually uh, does something um, questionable or exceedingly great uh in a medical capacity
2: yeah i'm i'm not as familiar with the original series as i am Uh, the one thing that i do remember um it's from the i think of voyage home the movie with the whales um, where he uh he gives a woman a pill to cure her uh, renal failure so she no longer has to do dialysis and from a medical ethical standpoint that's fine from a temporal ethical standpoint that's probably not great yeah um yeah Yeah, i guess they're already like kidnapping like brain biologists and humpback whales so fuck it what's a pair of kidneys like
3: yeah it there was definitely a moment there where he's just annoyed with this entire hospital medievalisms it's the bloody middle ages and such
0: right And he's like just goddamn like goddamn spanish inquisition
3: he, he bumps into a lady that's just like oh i need new kidneys i've been on dialysis and he's like here take two of these don't call me in the morning go away kind of thing right it was it wasn't like he had like a moment of consideration yeah. there it was just
2: like i can fix this real quick don't worry which i guess makes um, me wonder what those pills Do because it's not like he's carrying around kidney like fix your kidney pills because that's a very rarefied use of a drug to just have on your hands. So, like, is that just the standard this cures most human long term illness pill that they have that we never see?
3: Well, the way she phrases her (laughs) response when she's asked why she's celebrating is I I grew a new kidney, right? Mm. So, maybe it's some sort of like uh regenerative enhancement thing so that anything that's like an organ failure kind of helps you get through uh in rapid sense we
0: do uh Mm. we do a thing now where we we use like a a maybe i don't know the chemical specifically but like a radioactive iodine to find problems you know when Mm. for for things like um what's that uh intestinal issue if you have like little holes in your intestines ulcers um no my my grandma had it um it's like you can't eat seeds because they'll get caught and then the holes. I don't know. Anyway, diverticulitis. That's it. Yes, they they had they did a treatment for diverticulitis and they actually perforated her colon. They needed to use radioactive iodine to figure out where the perforation was. Um, it makes me wonder if that pill is like a radioactive iodine uh, analog in the future. That's like, let's find where all the problems are and then it's like, oh, there's a missing kidney here. <laughs> Just use some material. A smart there. pill. But. But that also brings into question, like, I had the same question about, like, Wolverine. How can he heal without eating 80 trillion calories a day? Like, that that matter just can't populate from nowhere. So was her metabolism just, like, supercharged? Is there an an adrenal uh, catalyst in that pill that, that does the thing? I mean, all kinds of just out there... Yeah. I mean, it's how Star Trek
3: cures radiation, right? Like there's no real understanding to it. There's no real like inoculation for gamma rays that you can give anybody. They're literally high energy particles that bust through your DNA and cause cancer later on, but somehow in Star Trek here, here's the hypospray. You're good for six hours of radiation now. It's like there's there's no concept for how that would work yet. But I mean, you can swallow it on face value and just move on because that's the story.
0: I'm just thinking about how you conduct a multi-trillion cell protection thing with a hypospray to prevent the breakdown of those cell membranes. But Yeah, the
3: best I can give you is some sort of, like, it introduces a bacteria into you that eats radioactive or radioactive decay, right? Like, because those exist. We found those in, like, the ruins of Chernobyl and such. So, like, it, it adds something that has a very short shelf life to your system that just wants to eat radioactive stuff. Something
0: like that's the best I can give you. <sighs> trying to think about more medical applications, my best experience with Bones is the movies. And I think the only part that really is questionable for me is why would would McCoy have access to the medical knowledge on Klingons that he would have needed to be more effective in helping Gorkon? Or would the Klingon anatomy just be completely evasive to Federation medical knowledge? I don't know well
3: even by treasure's time remember knowledge of the whole like backup organs thing was still pretty like she was kind of surprised that he's got two of everything almost right like she knew it was there but she didn't really have much experience with it so i could see where you know a couple like a century earlier mccoy would have just been like i thought this was his heart what's this beating thing over here <laughs> right I can't imagine that the Federation like condoned like forced autopsies on Klingon bodies after battlefields or anything, right? Like They're not going to study the bodies of the dead. I don't think Starfleet was ever doing that. So he may not have had much knowledge at all.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, I just mean, imagine did...
1: being a doctor in that time would be an extremely difficult job because you would be dealing with all these different types of, of aliens and, and species you've never dealt with. There's people that spend their entire lives here just how to treat a human and learning about the the human body, and then you have to add all these different types of creatures on top of it.
3: You want a really good example of McCoy being brilliant? When it came to the poisoning of Sarek in Babel 1, having to use Andorian blood to potentially try and save him, that whole thing was very, very smart, right? Like, finding a compatible blood donor amongst various other alien races and such, that all was
0: pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah. I have only watched through TOS one whole time, and uh, not a lot of that. I do recall there being an animated series episode where McCoy has to go on trial for some kind of cure that he tried to give out a few decades earlier that seemed to be killing some people, but uh, ultimately he's exonerated because there's falsified information, or he was framed, or something like that. Um, Yeah. Wow. Yeah. have ever... you guys
3: watched Lower Decks yet, by chance? I haven't yeah. had a chance. Okay. I recommend it, Mark. It's fantastic. I think you'll probably find Dr. Ta'ana to be one of your favorite Star Trek doctors once you get a get a couple episodes of her. Yeah.
2: Um, I guess if I could uh, could jump in, I would like to, I've shit on uh, Bashir a good bit, I would like to defend him a little bit. Oh. Um, I actually did really like the, uh, I don't remember the name of the episode, but the episode where Vedic Barail dies um i thought that was a really good um handling of the we have somebody who has a degenerative illness that is ultimately going to kill them or and the treatments are not going to you know because if you have human beings in the real world who have very serious uh, neuro, neurological disorders they change over time and that is deeply painful for the people in their lives and there are questions about should we treat somebody if they're going to come out the other side of that treatment, not themselves. And in that episode, I think they handle the conversation that Burial has with, say, Kira about I don't want to be alive anymore if I'm not going to be me. Um, I'm willing to die if it means I can accomplish this goal. And I think the way that they handled Burial's wishes in terms of his medical care is probably one of the better examples of medical ethics that would jive with our modern understanding of them uh, in, this, in any of the shows that I've seen. Um, and they, they do a good job of showing how painful it can be for the loved ones of patients who are exerting their their uh, autonomy and their medical decision making that you still have to respect
3: yeah the episode is life support for yeah. the listeners in case you want to watch that one again it's a good one for sure
1: what about the episode that brings up an interesting discussion too of that sometimes the hardest part in the medical field is not dealing with the patient but it's dealing with the family of the patient uh and that's that's a thing that a lot of people don't even really understand or realize possibly sometimes the patient is is okay with what's happening to them or at least understanding what's happening to them and it's the family members that you're having to talk to or explain and they're the ones that are creating a, a real dramatic situation uh, especially when it comes to a, a traumatic incident or injury uh, or people that have uh, terminal illnesses who maybe have come to uh, accept their fate but their spouse or their kids don't and, and go to transport them or deal with them. The patient's fine. They're they're not upset. They're obviously not happy they're in that situation, but they're at peace with it. And it's the family that's creating the real the real issues. Yeah. You don't see many families in Star Trek, so you kind of you have the main characters, but you don't have a lot of families associated with those main characters. Well you don't see
0: a lot of families like making a fuss out of it and maybe that belies a little bit of um the understanding that the medical professionals know more than you do and
2: you have to trust them to do the right thing yeah i uh i think in in like modern cases it comes down to um we're very bad at educating people like about medical things like i've talked to uh like, a lot of, like, terminally ill patients who have, say, do not resuscitate orders, and, um, a lot of times the family understands what that means, but a lot of times they don't. They're just not, like, and and this is, like, an in many cases an economic thing, but, like, if you're, like, poor or, or from an otherwise marginalized community, in many cases the medical establishment is not particularly interested in taking the time to treat you like a human being, uh, and treat you like an intelligent person who's capable of even understanding like a, an ethical conundrum and actually walking you through the ethical steps of what's involved in a do not resuscitate order. So people are walking around with family members who are terminally ill who who they understand the situation, they often not. And then the families are just completely they, they don't know what's going on and at the point of that person's death is not the time to be having that conversation. But unfortunately that's very often when that conversation happens and it's truly tragic.
0: Yep. Yeah, well said.
2: Which is one of the reasons I actually really liked that episode, because like they do go out of their way to really explore the weight of those situations in a way that I think we don't often do in the real world today so that was an area where star trek did better than we do for sure
3: well they have the benefit of having a set time window too right where they can tell <laughs> their whole story they don't have like the frantic sobbing of family yeah. members who just don't understand for hours on end so they've got some advantages over you don't worry
2: yeah, yeah they got a writing staff and a showrunner there, <laughs> there are a couple of episodes that i can think of
0: where they do have they do share family moments there was um uh I don't want to talk about this episode too much so I want to talk about the other episode first second whatever um but the Voyager episode Emanations where Harry Kim ends up on a world where they basically deposit their dead on a moon that's been mummified and yeah. the family there yeah. is is very much about like you need, to, you need to go on to your next emanation. This is just how it's done. And the guy himself doesn't want to go on to his next emanation. And he's like, well, let's just mummify Harry Kim and pretend he's me and we'll send him off to the moon and I'll go live my happy life out in the woods where I want to go. Um, the family that there kind of pleads the case that you need to do this. There's the TNG episode, uh, Half a Life, where you know, pre row Michelle Forbes as the daughter of Timon is pleading for him to go through their planet's suicide ritual because you're 60 now. It's time to go, Dad. Um, um, But then there's the episode that I like the most, which is, uh, I think it's just called The Blight, where Bashir, they find this planet that's been decimated by a disease infected by the Dominion. And, you know, people, family members, are, are coming to this native doctor who is helping people find peace before the blight quickens or as the blight quickens and you know people come to him and, and he gives them this ointment or, or, or drink that um, basically assisted suicide but in all three of these cases the family members are essentially pleading with the uh, the person who is you know to die basically um, to go through with that and um, And so that's definitely the opposite of what happens here, where the family members are like, no, don't die.
1: Yeah. They weren't just pleading. In some of those cases, they were kind of pushing it on and and almost forcing them to go through with it. Um, Right. I think in general, especially in the United States, death is kind of hidden. There's not a lot of people that have really experienced death or uh, even see death. Uh, So it's it's very scary when it actually hits your family and and you're experiencing firsthand um other societies on our planet view death in a very different way than i think the united states does um the, the half a life episode that was with david ogden steers right that was Correct. The episode with, yeah this one um i think i like the the magelle ronberry aspect of that where she was the one kind of speaking up and encouraging him to you know, not necessarily having to go through with it I always forget that Michelle Forbes was, was in that episode too. But uh, Emanations is another interesting episode dealing with uh, how a culture handles their dead and encourages them to go through the proper process. And, um, Harry's the one who kind of steps up. So again, it's like Prime Directive coming into play here. These different people interfering with a society and, and giving their opinion of how to how to handle different things. And it, it's uh, more ethical dilemmas to talk about.
0: And that being the case, the blight is the one episode that I really wanted to try and dig into is, you know, in, in terms of medical treatment, ethics, the the spirit of the show. Um what's your take on Bashir's actions here?
2: Um well so I think um, I think First, I want to say that the the doctor, or the, the maybe not doctor is the best word, but the person in that community who was providing end-of-life care, which is what I'll term it, for those people, uh, I have absolutely no problems with what they were doing. Um, I think that's a natural cultural development for those people. And what I think you see in that episode is... Um, it was also good for another reason, which is it was an, a humbling of Bashir, and by extension, I think a humbling of the audience who is meant to identify with the Federation. Um, which is that you cannot, just because you are a technologically advanced, quote-unquote, culturally advanced civilization, swoop into some place and figure everything out in the course of a 45-minute episode, um, and very often if you interject yourself into a situation where you don't have a full understanding of it the end result is going to be suffering which is what happened when Bashir tried to save those people and he did so without any understanding of what was happening and the end result was three three or four I think people if not more ultimately suffered immense pain at the end of their lives that they otherwise wouldn't have um so I think that's a, just a that's like a top-level look at it. In terms of Bashir's individual actions, I think that we can understand and have sympathy for what he was doing initially while still critiquing it. And then I think his actions post taking the time to understand what was happening are fairly admirable. Um, you see in later episodes that he's still quietly working on a cure for the, the quickening. Um, and doing it in a way that is uh, not like paternalistic and authoritative over those people, but trying to help them on their own terms, which is what he should have done in the first place.
3: So I want to veer to a slightly different science fiction franchise. Just mm-hmm. It's possible you guys have watched the Orville. I can't be sure. It is very TNG-esque.
2: Uh, I but saw like three uh, episodes of it.
3: I don't remember if it's in the first three, but uh, so there's a race in that show called the Machlins, right? And they are, they, they proclaim themselves to be a single sex species. They only have males, right? Uh, early on in that show though, we learned that that's just not true. They have females that are born into their species. It's just not common. It's like one every decade sort of thing. Their medical professionals enforce a conversion onto those individuals, right? Like whether they consent or not that's what the state insists must happen right so we've definitely seen some dystopian presentations in science fiction right are there any times that you guys have seen an episode and just been like holy shit that's disgusting from like a medical ethics perspective or from a healthcare perspectives like perspective on it
1: I think the Orville is actually a good example I have have seen the Orville and the whole forcing a medical decision on somebody in general, even if it's a small decision, is one that would be unethical, in my opinion. Um, I'm trying to think of a good Star Trek example that's similar to that Orville episode. Mm-hmm.
0: I um, would like to offer the outcast.
2: Uh, is that the one where they uh, force uh, the gender identity? Right. The alien? Yeah, that was what yeah, I was yeah, thinking as well. Um, yeah, that was... Uh, so i think that's a good example of where i interface with the ethics of star trek in general because i am i am of the mind that you have every right as a culture to determine your ethics and i have every right to disagree with them and and argue with you about what those are but i don't have the right to force my view on you it's kind of where i draw the line um And I think I would have a very, very long, very drawn-out argument with that civilization, and I would also—I'm also not obligated to participate in your culture either, so I'm perfectly comfortable not interfering directly with your culture, but if any of your people want to come to me and live lives according to how they feel is the most actualizing to their—to who they are, I'm perfectly willing to provide shelter to those people too um, which is what I I think is what uh, Riker was trying to do though he did it a little more uh, imperialistically than I might have <laughs> yeah. uh, you should
3: give the Orville a watch then yeah. because that same question with this Machlin species does come up in their second mm-hmm. season right like they're an important think of them as the equivalent of the Vulcans in Starfleet right mm-hmm. they threaten to leave the Federation in the middle of a war because they're starting to offer harbor to women who have fled their planet essentially right like they make it a big deal oh you you're gonna you're gonna aid criminals from our society we're leaving essentially is their reaction Mm -hmm. to it so it's it's quite a crippling threat but yeah you should definitely give it a watch then they they address this this philosophy behind this pretty well in the episodes too yeah i'll check that out for sure then Mm -hmm. but yeah going back to the question though jeff do you have any other examples of like terrible malpractice or like horrible philosophy behind things that's going on in starfleet's medicine that's just offensive to you at any level
1: oh boy so i think dealing with things like going back to barkley and uh addiction and transporter psychosis those type of issues um not so much horrifying to me but it seems like that's a topic that I really would have liked them to explore a little bit more. Hmm. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea of, you know, if we had a true holodeck nowadays, you know there would be people that would be addicted to that and spend their entire lives in there. Um, I, think... I mean,
3: Barkley's definitely coded, what we'd call now, he's coded neurodivergent, right? At the time, yeah. they didn't have the language for that, but that's essentially what he's used as. He's the, the weird kid in school that doesn't think like everybody else, but we're putting him to use right so it's it, it was definitely progressive in its time but in from a modern context it's it's almost belittling the way they talk to him or talk about him while he's next to them so yeah there's definitely improvements to be uh thought of for how they treat the character and certainly not getting his name wrong in in front of mixed company right like with senior <laughs> officers getting called broccoli Ooh, yeah
1: real bad
2: yeah I actually really probably liked... one of the most
1: horrifying things is the I think of the Vidians, obviously not uh starfleet but having a race of people that are actually going around and and stealing organs that that's a pretty horrifying idea Uh, but you understand their motivation obviously is to keep themselves alive Uh, so that's uh, another interesting thing that you'd have to deal with
3: remember they also not just took body parts they also took genetic material to grow clones would experiment on races to take like experiment like experiments on people anything they could do to survive it was definitely uh, ends justifying their means, they're just survival. So, there's definitely a lot of medical horror questions that come up as a result of the Vadim yeah. storylines on
0: the, Voyager. The reverse Tuvix with Bolana as her two different yeah. selves.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Mark, you were going to say something? Oh, I was going to say uh, I actually liked the way that uh, I feel like the writers of Star Trek and the various iterations of it kind of understood at least a little bit where they fucked up with Barkley. Um, as you can see, like, his character evolve over the franchise um, and start to become well-respected, and uh, his, his prior... Like, the things that he was, like, made fun of in previous episodes are now seen as, like, just character traits of Barkley that are part of who he is in the Voyager episodes. Um, it's not 100%. Like, there's still problems with how he's portrayed in Voyager, but I think they tried. Um, which is which is something. It's not It's not nothing. I, I wish they would have done better, though, but I think that uh, they did at least try to evolve that character in a way that uh, is better presenting of who he is supposed to be, which is coded as neurodivergent.
3: I think you're completely right. Yeah, by the time that he was in Voyager, he's definitely getting a bit more respect. He's still considered, like, the odd duck, the the one that needs a little bit of extra handholding to get up through his day, but he's definitely respected, and he's definitely... Uh, in charge of something that's pretty important towards the end of that show. The Midas array, entire storyline was great.
0: Well, and part of the acceptance that we see in in Barkley's arc is he goes from being called Broccoli by the experts on the flagship, you know, the best of the best, to everybody just calling him Reg. Everybody, from first contact onwards. Like, I, I'm sure they called him Barkley at some point, but in all of his appearances pa- post-first contact into Voyager... Deanna calls him Reg. Uh, Everybody on Voyager calls him Reg. Everybody at Project, um, what's whatever the project he's on, trying to get Voyager home. Pathfinder. Pathfinder. Thank you. Everybody there calls him Reg. Um, There's definitely uh, in in just in the power of names, the way that we give people power with names, um, going from somebody who was misnamed to someone who's, you know, diminutive for their formal name is now the familiar name. Um, that speaks volumes, you know, when you first enter a crowd and, and there's, you know, maybe there's some kind of in joke where somebody says something about you and that just becomes your nickname and then everybody just calls you that and you're all aware of it. It's all fun and games. Um, definitely speaks to um, Reg's acceptance in society. I just wanted to call back to the blight real quick and and be like, Dax, like hacking and slashing at Bashir and the audience by being like, you know, it's probably pretty arrogant to think that you uh, you could find a cure, but it's even more arrogant to think that there's not one just because you couldn't find it. I was just like, that's perfect writing right there. <laughs> just slap the audience out of its comfort zone, slap Bashir out of his comfort zone. Um, I I think. I think the quickening takes place before we find out Bashir's genetically augmented, too. I think so. So, so, you know, when you watch that episode again, knowing that he's this, you know, criminal genius, literally, um, it it just, you know, it speaks volumes about Bashir's determination and and maybe is even a milestone in the maturity of the character because, as we all know, when he comes aboard, he's basically just the doctor who's chasing Dax around DS9. (sighs)
3: Well, I mean, Star Trek has definitely shown us some diseases that are mystifying, essentially. The phage, the Vidians have had to deal with it for 2,000 years. It's been a pandemic across their entire race. It's changed the way the society functions. It's ruined their relations with other races. It's like a transformative event. And then the doctor makes legitimate progress on actually curing it in a matter of weeks. Right? And that just goes to show us not that the Vidians were dumb or that they couldn't solve it themselves, but that a new perspective really changes how you approach something, right? A new background can cause you to reevaluate how you treat a medical condition. So we've got a lot that we can learn from that kind of idea too. So uh, Jeff or, or Mark, either one of you guys, have you guys ever had one of those situations where just a colleague from say a, a different field or a different line uh, is just approaching something differently than you and you, you feel like you weren't a lot because of it?
1: Well, I think it's a good reason to always get a second opinion on things, especially when it Absolutely. comes to the medical medical field. Um, uh, I was in a very bad motorcycle accident uh, a number of years ago. and broke both of my legs and had to go through physical therapy. And that's one of the main reasons why I stopped working as an EMT is because I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, and I had a, an issue with my leg where you, know, the, you, know, you didn't really understand or agree with the first doctors so to get a second with the second doctor. The second doctor sends you to the third doctor, and you kind of go through this whole process of of trying to get someone who will understand what you're saying, believe what you're saying, and and actually find a solution or come up with an idea. Um, And that's good in in medicine to have that ability, but it's also frustrating for people to have to go through that type of process. Um, But not everyone knows everything, and every injury is different, every situation is different. So you can't expect that the first and only doctor you go to is going to be the one that will be able to solve your problems and make you better
3: no that makes perfect sense yeah
2: um yeah i would say um just from an outside perspective uh i have uh so working nine one one. a lot of our uh patient population is opiate overdoses um and that is uh, when you're dealing with a population who habitually uses narcotics, um, there are some very, very, very negative attitudes in public safety towards that patient population. Um, I'm not gonna reiterate many of the terrible things I've heard paramedics and EMTs say about IV drug users here, but they're many times not great, Um, whereas I personally uh, have a history of narcotics abuse. I was a drug addict for many years, and prior to becoming a paramedic, and I've had several friends die of narcotics overdoses. And uh, I'm very quick to remind my coworkers who say things like, well, we should you know, just wake people up from an overdose once, and if you don't get your shit together after that, we let you die. Um, I'm very quick to speak to my coworkers about that, and once you, I've found once you humanize the patient for somebody and say, hey, this is actually a... This is something that this person might not have as much control over as you think. They're, this is not just a problem for you to deal with. This is a human being with a family who is going to cry over them if they don't wake up. Uh, I've actually found I've changed a fair number of minds of people who were previously very hostile. Um, and I think that that's, that's important. Um, is being able to offer somebody another perspective. In terms of uh, my own uh, perspective being changed, um, I actually was uh, not aware of how thoroughly toxic uh, the mental health care inpatient uh, hospitals were in this country to uh, transgendered people. Um, In terms of like, in many places, they will deny you your hormone replacement therapy. it's not prescribed explicitly for that purpose. Uh, I wasn't aware of that until I started making trans friends and hanging out with trans people who had interacted with that system. And you know, I'd spent seven years in healthcare, taking people to inpatient mental health care facilities, um, and that changed a lot for me as well in terms of you know understanding and empathizing with a particular patient population. Like I think you can always learn something that will make you a better person by interacting with people at their own level.
0: Yeah, um, as a man who is now married to a man who went through that experience of transitioning, um, not physically, but uh, adopting a new name and, um, you know, male pronouns, um, I have entered a whole new world of experiences that, you um, I was just completely oblivious about and uh it has definitely tried to open my heart and I I feel a little bit like you where I try to speak up and be like, Whoa, 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 we're talking about people here. So, uh yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's powerful.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I'm curious, Mark, how do you think Star Trek dealt with addiction? Because we've seen it (laughs) a couple times like with uh the game and holiday addiction and there's individual episodes but no real prolonged yeah.
0: storylines well I'd like to not... add to that before Mark answers the question we've seen it weaponized in the Jem'Hadar too yeah,
2: yeah. that's that's yeah. such a good example for it too yeah I, I would say overall not great um I, I've not been pleased with how they handled it um in the early episodes it was mostly you know dare like you, you know if you smoke one marijuana yeah. you will become the criminals uh and die in a gutter um but, uh, yeah, there's just not been a lot of nuance there, um, like, the entire planet of junkies who are, like, scratchy fiend, and, and it's, I, I wasn't, I I didn't like that too much, um, but, uh... That was the symbiosis episode, I think? yeah, Yeah, and I, you know, like, I... Most people, I think, who, and I'm, I'm going to try to avoid getting on a spiel about how, like, I think we should have safe injection sites everywhere and all that stuff, but I, I think drug addiction is a problem in a population when drug addiction is criminalized rather than being treated like a healthcare care problem. Um, and despite having the resources to treat uh, addiction like a healthcare problem or a pain management problem or some sort of other mental health care problem uh, star trek has all the resources for that they very often treat it as a individual personal failure um, and it, it's it does have kind of a puritanical attitude towards it that I'm not too comfortable with in terms of the jim hadar i i I mean I see the the jim I'm a big believer in like moral luck um, and I see the Jem'Hadar as just profoundly unlucky. Um, and I think that they were created as slaves to do the bidding of another species, and, uh, one of my favorite episodes of DS9 actually was the one where, uh, Bashir and O'Brien find themselves on that planet with, uh, the one Jem'Hadar who just happened to not need the White, and was trying to get his squad off of it to resist the Dominion and ultimately failed, um, because he just happened to be genetically, he was a fluke. It's not something like they truly were fundamentally dependent on it for their survival. Um, And I think that was a really interesting exploration of what that would do to a species if you essentially bred into them a lack of agency, which is what that really is. I I don't know that the Jim Hadar catcher cell white thing really it's coded maybe as drug addiction but I think more accurately it's probably in the minds of the show's creators just seen as like an added extra layer of control so I don't I don't get too miffed about that I think it was just a narrative device and they didn't think too hard about it
3: yeah no Ira Bear one of the creators on it has definitely said that it it's coded addiction slash religion both at the same time right like the, it's it would be like being addicted to opium because God wants you to be addicted to opium is essentially how he's coded it.
0: That's literally it. it though. The founders want you to be addicted to this stuff, so right, go right,
3: right ahead.
2: Like like, a, like if you were physically addicted to communion wine. Right?
3: Exactly. That's a great yeah. way to look at it.
2: Yeah. But you know, it also seems like, the founders were,
0: existentially afraid of people like Omediclon who had the mm-hmm. genetic, you know immunity, didn't need the, the catcher cell wide or whatever it was and that might be why they they programmed it in anyway maybe there was like a first race of gem hadar who tried to turn against, turn against the founders and so they made them chemically addicted in order to stem that tide
1: um, that's terrifying. going back
3: to it though Jeff do you do you want you have a chance here yeah, as yeah, well yeah. to say yeah, the yeah. same
1: as far as addiction yeah or as far as uh
3: addiction and the Jem Hadar, like the whole
1: whole... yeah i i mean i'm lucky that i haven't had any addiction problems in my life or or my family's life really um but being an emt you'd see it every day and you'd see how mental health would would play into that as well um i think star trek obviously has touched on it in a few situations i I agree that i don't think they've really done a very good job at it um going back to mental health in general. they did what they could for the 90s. I think they're doing better now. Maybe yeah. that's a storyline that Discovery or Picard could pick up and, and try and do something with. Because um, even in the future, I think there's clearly, you, you do see drugs in Discovery in one episode, but it's, again, it's just kind of touched on and then don't not look back. Um, I think it's something that, since a lot of people do deal with or have a history of, or family has a history of, it would be nice to see in Star Trek and handled a little different way.
3: do see a little bit of it in picard with uh raffi's uh snake snakeweed i believe is the name addiction um which is probably just coded pot
2: but something along those lines Yeah. yeah yeah i um i actually thought the uh the ethanol thing was really interesting because um if i'm not mistaken in within the context of the series, ethanol or not ethanol, synthahol Sorry, synthohol. Synthohol. Yeah, synthahol The gist of that is you can just get as tore the fuck up as you want, but you're one hypo spray away from being sober or something to that it. It's supposed effect.
3: to even easier than that.
2: It's supposed to just be like you can
3: essentially push it out of your brain instantly, just kind will of Will yourself right? like one, Will yourself into sobriety instantly, right. kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I I think that it's interesting that they, uh, and I understand why they did it, but that they did that specifically, that analog with alcohol. Um, Whereas there are so many other just better drugs that you could do that with. (laughs) Like, I would imagine a, uh, once you remove the the ability to become addicted to a substance, presumably you can't become addicted to synthahol either. Um, I don't know if that's ever stated or not, but uh, either that or everybody on the show is an alcoholic because they're always in ten forward. <laughs> um, so Sorry. and you remove the uh, negative cognitive effects. Like, why isn't ten forward serving synth heroin, right? Like, I feel like sure. synthobium right? Like, there's so it's it's just interesting that they carried forward the sort of like weirdly puritanical attitude that America has 400 years in the future where alcohol's okay um, to the extent that Picard has the real stuff and he's seen as cooler for it. Um, alcohol's fine, but this game that you spend all your time playing, is, is that's bad because it's like a, a heroin analog. Right.
3: So there's definitely some of this is carried over right from Roddenberry himself, right? So early on during TOS's production, they originally approached to do like cigarette commercials with the main cast and Roddenberry was like, no, they were not having smoking on the Enterprise. It's absolutely not possible, right? And at the time, you know, the, the dangers of nicotine and tobacco weren't quite as clear, but there was already some inkling on it. So he just banned it there. It's not until like Picard, uh, Star Trek Picard, where we see a main character positively using like a cigar, right, frequently. And we see Rio doing it all the time in every scene, basically, mm-hmm. he's got something in his lips, right? So it was quite a while until we, jump that okay, well Roddenberry's specific fixation on this doesn't have to be carried forward. We'd seen characters here and there, right? But most on icolodex like and such. But yeah, so there's definitely some aspects. It's not just American curtainicalism. It was specifically Roddenberry's view on some things. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The, uh, that's was it. the other episode that actually is analogous to drug addiction that just popped in my head was um Garrick's wire Ooh. in his head. That that was a pretty good I, I don't know if they addressed it directly within the text of the episode but the subtext is just it's about a drug addiction
0: oh yeah oh, A yeah. Yeah. little wire that you can willingly induce the happy chemicals and mm-hmm. he lives on it for two years before um, I, I you know and somebody who's who has also never had to deal with addiction either personally or adjacently um, how did that episode reflect um, withdrawal is, is that a, is that an okay
2: yeah I mean it's a little I mean it's a little dramatic in some places and under dramatic in others but like on balance I think that actually was a, a really good portrayal of somebody who was trying to come to terms with The cessation of something that they were both physically and psychologically dependent on. I think the, uh, you know, the episode ends in 45 minutes and we don't really see the long term struggle that he has to deal with every day. Um, It also helps that he is not actually able to go out and get more happy brain wires. Um, Like that makes it easier for him. Uh, So he physically is incapable of relapsing. Um, but yeah, overall, I thought that was a, a pretty, pretty good uh, portrayal of uh, of that whole process for for that character. I, 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 it's Star Trek, uh, so I'll give it a uh, I'll give it a, a ten for Star Trek and like a seven for like a show that was trying to do that. Because <laughs> uh, Star Trek, you know, it, we love it, but right. sometimes it with the social stuff it can. Get a oh. little astray. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Jeff, any thoughts to that end?
1: I think that's a. Again, you know, it's not having dealt with it in my own life, but I have seen people in stages of withdrawal. They seem to be a fairly reasonable um, patient. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thought too they had the ability to give him that happy brain wire, like you say, and and control his happiness, that's another whole ethical argument of, would that be something that people would become addicted to? And how, how could that maybe be used for good reasons for people that are dealing with chronic issues or chronic pain? That's something you could maybe flip and and actually use to help people if properly uh, supervised controlled that'd be something that'd be very interesting to me
3: yeah that same subject actually comes up in some of the beta and stuff i don't know if you guys are familiar with it much but there's a game called star trek borg and one of the characters in it anastasia targus also had that same brain wire hooked up to her by cardassians and it was used both as torture and pain and then pleasure and reward just to force her into giving up information over and over and over to the point where even after she's been rescued she needs to have like a white noise generator on it just so she doesn't go crazy from its complete absence. When it's removed from her, it, it causes severe and automatic withdrawal symptoms from the lack of stimulation that comes from it. So, yeah, the subject isn't something that's just in the one episode. It does
2: come up in beta canon here and there. Cool. I would, um, I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I do think if I had a critique of that episode or, like, a specific criticism, it would be that that it is coded as negative regard. Like, it's not like you said there are positive potential uses for that technology and like i would argue potentially uh that somebody who is an exile on a station that is climate controlled in every way that is horrible for them they encounter people who despise them every waking moment of their life their life is essentially a nightmare for them if you have that type of technology is it necessarily ethically bad for that person to choose to use something that makes it bearable for them to live if there are no negative physical consequences of it. It's coded as being bad on principle um, and I would argue that it's not, that that's actually something that probably should be dealt with more, in a more nuanced way, um, that the show didn't really get into. Wow.
3: Yeah, that's definitely a good point, right? Sometimes the, how do I phrase it, the potential benefits of a technology don't get as much attention as the obvious negatives on them so you're definitely right there
0: and and i think we have demonstrated in talking about it in several different places in this episode that uh cardassian medical technology is ridiculously advanced and almost always used sadistically which is very sad what? for for the people in general but like we're talking about the the positive applications of this wire what about the positive applications of the pain device used on picard and command uh, chain of command mm-hmm. or you know as we discussed earlier Krell Mosette's horrible tactics but also tried to use positively to cure Bolana.
3: well let's not forget right the original coding or the original message use of the cardassians was supposed to be like nazi analogs right like and the Georgians to be pretty similar to like jewish refugees basically right like that was where a lot of the original coding for both of those races came from uh so you know chroma said is quite literally Mengele and the nazis advances in medicine are what these cardassian advances are supposed to be analogous to so yeah there's a there's a reason why these comparisons come up it's not accidental
0: for sure for sure I think, uh, I think we've run the course of time for what we have available today. Um, Jeff, Mark, thank you so much for being here with us today to talk about this. I hope that in the future, maybe we can do um, a more detailed focus or a dive into uh, one or two particular episodes and really break those down. Um, for the audience, I hope that you appreciate the, the contrast that we presented here and maybe thinking about these medical episodes and applications in different ways and seeing the, the medical and psychological um, experiences of those around you in a more humane and, and different way as well. I know that um, I've definitely got a lot to think about after this conversation. So thank you very much. Um, and to the viewers and listeners, thank you for always going boldly with Beyond Trek podcast. Thank you. (laughs) Hey everybody. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Patreon and Anchor supporters. Big thanks to Stephanie Baker, S. Tam, Anne Marie, Jim Cook, and Nora Hickson. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for being a part of Beyond Trek Podcast. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious trip content to your day.
2: Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile.